welcome. I'm Romy Neme, and this is The Third Person, a podcast where we take a step back and explore what could be if only the way that things currently are didn't have such a hold over our imaginations. I had the privilege of talking to Andrea Miller, artistic director and choreographer of Brooklyn's own Galim Dance, who's turning 12 this year and returning to the Joyce Theatre in February after a one-year residency at the Met. Yalim has entered my pantheon of artists. You know, the ones that you check up on once every now and again to see when they'll be touring in your city. Lucky for me, choreographers produce new work at a faster clip than most artists do. Andrea and I talk about the choreographer as a chemist of emotions, dissolving boundaries between the audience and dancers' bodies, dance as the art form of the city, and creating a better dance between strangers in urban spaces. So much of what we see as an audience of dance feels like an abstraction. So I wanted to start the conversation by asking Andrea how she would describe her role as a choreographer. You know, in many ways, I think if I've done my job right, you really don't think about some of the craft or the... um, the sausage making, as they would say, the mystery of that. Um, in many ways, when I make work, I really love to find a way to feel like people might think that it's happening for the first time in front of them. And that while choreography is my job title, my real work is to put things in a situation in which they can become in existence in that moment for the first time and set almost like a chemistry experiment where you need the certain environment and ingredients to create a specific effect or explosion or um, result and um, that's a lot of what the, the tools are that I try to hone in on. I guess some things, you know, that are fundamental to dance is figuring out how the body is moving and behaving. And that is a process of physicality, but also dramaturgical work and making sure that what you're aspiring to achieve is somewhat happening legibly in front of you. Having danced with the famous Israeli Batsheva Ensemble, I wanted to know what she was able to explore about herself there, both as a dancer and a choreographer, and how that journey of self-discovery has continued in the years since founding Galim. So I think, you know, when you transition from being a student and you're in a more professional environment, it's a big process change where you're just like, teach me everything, I, I know nothing. And then uh, while I was there, I started recognizing, oh, this is who I am as a mover. This is what I believe, or this is what I like about movement. And I started realizing that a lot of the things that I was learning uh, at Bacheva were things that I already held very close and were innate to me as a, as a, as a mover. But I didn't have words to, to describe it. I didn't have tools to hone it in I didn't know where to mine that sort of how to mine that voice and so 
Um, I think what I got from that was really a lot of information and tools for getting through, especially through improvisation for getting closer to who I am as an artist. And many of those things I did feel connected with at, at Bacheva, but there were many things that I didn't connect with. And in some ways is maybe why I had to start making my own work too. Specifically at Bacheva, I felt was such a great experience for me was returning to why I wanted to dance, which was something that I think got a little bit blurry while I was at Juilliard. It was an amazing education, but the purpose of Juilliard wasn't necessarily an artistic one. It was more of really making sure that technically we were at the highest level possible and that professionally we understood how to manage um, and behave professionally in, in the field. And so during four years, you kind of get a little bit confused without having that inspiration. And so at Bacheva, it was just so much juicy stuff to play with. And there was room artistically for me to play because Ohad makes room in his work for that. And so, yeah, I think I found out early on that I'm very creative. Um, and, and then when I started making my own work, I got very busy about figuring out my own, like wanting to have something about my own approach. And maybe because I saw Ohad has, has Gaga, my, my teacher prior was in Humphrey Weidman, had the release, uh, fall and recovery. And Graham also somebody who I really admired before as a, as a young student and, and still do had also her theory. And I said to myself, like, I really felt like this was my next, you know, thing that I had to do. So I think that's what I've been thinking about and really trying to understand what is it that I have to bring to this field as a choreographer uh, for movement and beyond around performance in general. If part of the work of a choreographer is designing bodies in space, then what is the role of contact improv and improvisation more broadly in exploring movement with dancers? So improvisation is a really, really fundamental element in my creative process. And I have been working a lot also on making the process of choreography, like of making movements, be very similar and if not completely fluid with the process of improvising. So instead of having them in two silos, like, okay, now we're going to improvise, or now we're going to choreograph, there's almost no clarity where the edge is on that in the studio. But I guess the main reason that I early on was using improvisation was to figure out how to, to source information from my body or ideas about how I could move or how movement could be emotional or could could represent ideas or could teach me about the dances that I'm trying to make. And then as I got older and was less of a dancer, improvisation became a tool for me not to have to m make all of the movements, but to build a lot of information and language and borders uh, for for dancers to be able to to work without me 
making the material, but they could still find language and material and and understand the work through uh, through me still, and more so now through through their their own process. So it's been it's just yeah it's fun it's been a great part of what I do. We have a game called bumper cars. And everyone's just like bumping around the space, like bumper cars, total chaos. And then someone stops. And then once you know, I see that someone stops, you have to also stop. It's kind of like freeze. It's a very simple game. But then who's ever st- last to stop has to do a solo. I can say that one of the things that we've been improvising on for this work is how we could kind of behave like natural elements, like ice. Um, cracking and then melting or falling off like big chunks of glaciers or behaving like uh, watching a time-lapse video of something. We only see the finished product, but I was curious to hear about the earliest representation of the work that she's inspired to pursue and what perhaps emerges more organically throughout the process. Well, I I mean, I really try to make sure that I don't start any piece the same, because I feel like if you start the same, you might end the same. So I try to make sure that I'm starting from a different point or with a new, like, I've never used text before, or I've I've never worked with this, a site specific um, uh, work, or I've, Something that oh, sometimes, I mean, it could be as simple as like, I'm, I'm not using music. Sometimes I don't even know that I'm starting in the sense that for this piece, for example, to create a world, I've been creating this piece basically since September, but I feel like it was almost only today, February, January, thank God it's not February, January, that I'm realizing, oh, that's what this piece is about. Now I can start. You know, so I'm starting today in some ways. Starting, you really want to make sure, I guess, that it's kind of like you're starting a car. You know, you, you're you turning on the ignition and who's in the car with you. And I think you want to make sure that the idea is in the car with you. But sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can't. And sometimes there's something else that's with you. And the idea because I work very instinctually and intuitively and I know that I want to do this but I don't know why and it takes me some time of pursuing it before it reveals itself so yeah it's really scary when you turn on the car and you're just by yourself and you don't have that idea for someone listening it might feel like totally wow that's I mean it might be an exaggeration because I feel like I know what I'm on. I'm on to this. I'm on to this. And I know in order to be on to this, I I have to have these things. And then all of a sudden I figured out why I'm on to it. And and that's that's what kind of came for me today. To create a world, you know, I knew that I wanted to, like, look at what are the different states of existence or from nature to the emergence of man – to potentially what might be next or and and only today did I realize that my you know my my children were born 
five and three years ago. So really relatively recently. It's a big... And then my father passed away last summer. And, well, he was hit by a car. And so I feel like I've been in this, like, very tight frame of learning about a lot about the biggest two moments of life, um, creation and, and, and death. And... I think that's why I've made this piece to create a world because I'm bouncing between these two really very visceral and challenging realities to to try to understand, to try to incorporate, to try to live, you know, with most meaning and I think maybe today I, f- I realized, oh, that's why I'm doing this. Like, I didn't understand. It was more it, like it's, it was an artistic pursuit. I understood the artistic, but I'm really realizing personally why I, I want to make this dance. Andrea talks a lot about her creations as research. And here she tells us about what hypotheses she and her dancers tinkered with during her residency at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, with stone skipping and carbon, and how those experiments translate into movement that we can see and understand. Hmm. Well, just to give some language around research as a word and how it's used in, for me and maybe for others in dance. When someone is on stage and they're not talking to you as an actor would, sort of, giving you information that you can clearly kind of understand and follow. When it's a human body, which is not an abstract thing, like a musician playing an instrument, immediately abstracted. Painter, so I'm not abstract as a human. You and I have the same body, and I'm doing things that you wouldn't do. And so what I'm basically required to do, I feel like as an artist, and why we need to do research is how do the abstract things that I'm doing create a sum of which as an experience I feel like I'm being given a very useful way of searching for meaning and where I don't feel like I'm just seeing like arbitrary movements and or that I'm just being entertained you know by music and dance together but there's something that, that in this abstraction that there's space for me to enter as an audience person and to, to look at all of the things that you're doing and try to make, get information from it and make thoughts and questions. So why we research is to make sure that the information we're sharing with the audience and the way that our body is moving or if we're moving with someone else or if it's, it's heavy or it's light, or it can inform an audience member as to maybe what the effect of this whole work is going to produce. And so when I do research, I'm researching, well, in this piece, is gravity heavier than it would be in, you know, our typical Earth experience? Is, is it cold in here? Is it hot in here? Am I a human or am I something else? Am I like a painting? Am I more like a, a brush stroke? So you just have so much to kind of learn so that you can be really thoughtful and intentional about the information 
that you're you're producing. And so that's part of a big part of what research is. Another part of research is saying, okay, this is the theme that I'm working around, like life and death. What are some scenes that I want to make sure are here? And so you just have to, you just really have to play so much before you really get a handle of the material that you're going to end up, you know, molding into, into this work. Research specifically around stone skipping and carbon and now what is going to become to create a world has largely been around the body, the corporeal urgencies and of the body and its survival, but also its ability to transcend those corporeal sort of urgencies. You know, like we need bread and water, but we can also say, unlike other animals, you know what, I'm going to fast so that maybe I can have some spiritual experience. Or, you know, we have the ability through our consciousness or whatever to just have this transcendence from those more basic things. I think that's what I was kind of looking at. So what changes when suddenly dance moves outside the theater and evolves alongside a dynamic space and audience? I think this is why it's really important for me to work in other spaces outside of the theater because you can, you end up really getting very, I wouldn't, I don't know if you ever get comfortable, but there's certain assumptions that you just make, like this is front (laughs) to start with. And so just being able to move into a new space was so freeing and made me realize not only was I not using what is possible through dance, I don't think the audience was using what's possible through dance. On the thin insert that you got when you went to see Carbon at the Met Brewer was this artifact that I'd never seen before, a choreography for the viewer. One, survive. Shift your weight from foot to foot. Pause, decide where movement will begin. Keep arriving. Walking is a small collapse from step to step. Nomad, forward is relative. Two, love, collide. Stop, locate your edges. Try to expand them. Try to cross them. Try to fuse them. Three, mass. Look around the room. Calibrate volumes. Whisper. Gravitation is not an option. You definitely, I mean, there's lots of things that you have to think about. One is that they have the audience has agency to move through the space with with the work for as long or as little as they want to and as close or as far or that they might not have sight line because there's other people in front of them. And so basically every, uh, the control is completely different of what um, you're doing. And so I, you still want to captivate, but it's a different kind of captivation. Um, you There's a sort of like drawing, in, like being able to pull people's focus in um was something that was really important in order to 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 say like there is something happening here that isn't pedestrian that isn't like walking around there's some other there are people here just like you but they're doing something else and it it lives in a specific world and that world is a little bit different than the world that you're standing in and um we can bridge that if you just spend some time with us you know it won't you, you can get closer to our world. Um, 
So um, I think that was an element. There was so many technical elements that I'm not used to that the Met requires, you know, so much advanced information around any piece of fabric or material or I don't know, anything that will be there that will be touched, that will be seen has to go through approval process. So that's, you know, a big part. And in my work, I'm, I, I iterate so quickly, you know, I'm like, okay, I don't think we need that clay wall anymore. Or I want the clay wall to be on the ceiling or, you know, like, it, and that it's not possible in a space that needs so much approval time. And so that was a big consideration on how I was going to create the work. I think that when you work in new spaces, you also have to think about the dancers and their ability to, you know, safely and vibrantly and boldly do the things you ask them to do. Because if there's any element that keeps them pulled away, it's really felt. Urbanists have long been fascinated by dance as a metaphor for how we negotiate urban spaces. William Holly White talks about the famous sidestep in his folksy documentary The Social Life of Small Urban Spaces to describe how people swiftly avoid bumping into each other. Jane Jacobs wrote the beautiful Sidewalk Ballet, where she describes dance as the art form of the city. Similarly, choreographers have been enthralled by public spaces. Twyla Tharp in 1983 created Dancing in the Streets, and she reflects... Part of the premise was, couldn't life and art be simultaneous? So we read books, chewed gum, changed clothes, and danced. And just last year, Monica Bill Barnes did the museum workout with over 1,200 people, and it was so popular I couldn't even get a ticket. So I wanted to ask Andrea what she sees when she looks outside in the thick of the New York tangle. And how might we reimagine our collective dance? or reconfigure our bodies as we encounter each other through our dense city spaces. I really feel like you can see a difference between the way cities are that were built before the Industrial Revolution and cities after the Industrial Revolution. And I feel like there's something way more like about efficiency, you know, that it's long, like if we figure out how to, it to be efficient, that things can go through, that large things can pass, uh, or people, like the amount of people to scale, and that I think that that had become like much more of a value than other things. Maybe you could say, maybe aesthetics, maybe experience. So what, I, what I've noticed about how I see people in New York is like they don't know each other. Nobody knows each other. I live in the same neighborhood since 2000 for 19 years I've lived in the same neighborhood and I really don't know anybody very much in my neighborhood I know a few people and I could it's not that I couldn't because the Upper West Side I feel like you they used to know a lot of the people that lived there you know but don't know we don't I don't know anybody and so I would try to create a situation in which you felt a little less like anonymous where you had to like maybe slow down or run it or be closer to people in more social ways and not just like because we're commuting to work that somehow there were obstacles like that had that you had to or I don't know like just more opportunity to take away that stranger feeling that would sort of be what 
my mission would be is to actually make it less efficient. Having worked with crowd dynamics in her piece Wonderland, which dealt with herd mentality, I ask her how she feels about and reconciles the power of the individual versus the unity of the collective. I feel like I have this contrasting sort of passion for the individual. Like I really, really think that each person is, their soul is shaped so infinitely different than another while there might be some shared things but just even even calling anything anything is just to me it's just like very it's helpful but sometimes it's actually really limiting um and so i i really love i think the idea is like how could we be very individual and very tolerant so that we could all be together we don't have to by like because somehow i feel like being together we're sort of agreeing to some sort of like a big paintbrush that we all need to have share the same color or something, but that we could all be very unique and very um, individual and still like a- agree to share the space together in a way where, you know, um, you feel a sense of tremendous trust because a mass of people is all agreeing to some kind of silent social contract of being here together peacefully and I think that just is so it gives you so much hope or it just gives you it's there's a sense of euphoria you know at concerts or soccer games or whatever when it feels like it's going well as a collective I think it starts turning around when you start feeling like that a certain individual behavior isn't allowed in that collective space you know basically a lot of tolerance in that would be be ideal I, I like um, I like the idea of us doing big group things, you know, like the New York Marathon or concerts in the park. Or I think it's a really important thing for humans to practice. Practice is an interesting theme because one excuse that's often used is that the friction of diversity is to the detriment of harmony. There's also the theory of contact hypothesis which is a way to rehearse interactions in a group where there may be conflict. Here's Andrea's fascinating take on those forces and how they help her shape her work. I think harmony and conflict are not like, like you want to avoid conflict and achieve harmony. I feel like they're both necessary. I think that, I think it was Martin Luther King who said like, no change happens without tension. You know, tension is the thing that pushes people to move shift accommodate adjust um and so and maybe i think i see maybe it's because i'm spanish and they're very conflictive kind of thing. it's like not uncomfortable for people to have a fight in spain it's like okay we're talking <laughs> loudly with a lot of emotion so it may be something i'm I don't, i'm not afraid of in, entirely human and maybe not just humans but all life is in motion two things they kind of rock you know you go between like democrat republican democrat republican it just goes back and forth and to me that's just like a bunch of conflict (laughs) like rocking between one conflict and another conflict when you add the third element when you add the third possibility you start rolling and motion happens and so you also can't have just harmony necessarily for motion. 
it just stays static and people change and you have to adjust to those changes so that it's kind of looking for the role looking for the that we're rolling that we're using conflict we're using harmony to grow to change to become part of motion artistically really there's nothing interesting that doesn't have conflict so conflict is a really really important part of how you build in an experience in in a work I mean it's possible to do it without it's like a rave I guess you could say but yeah I, I do think that we need to kind of go through there's no way but through so I have to create something we go through and and you want to kind of as a result of going through something, experience what it's like to fail and what it's like to have victory. And then somehow at the other end of the performance, you look back and you rode away like a surfer. You rode a wave and it's exhilarating. So what other ideas that break traditional form might we expect after to create a world? I have a lot of ideas of playing in different sort of ways with, with movement and um, from like working with brands to film. And right now there's two sort of alternative things I'm jumping into. And who, you know, they're on burners. We'll see which one starts to boil first. But one is a, a show that I have in mind where it repeats three times. Um, and each time there's a very significant change in how its experience as an audience member and also for the performers and you start to learn the shape of the piece and so as it's repeated this variable that's introduced is some is what you experience and you can let your concerns about the storyline kind of quiet um, and really enjoy the theatrical screwing with your mind that's happening uh so that's it's it's an adaptation of a movie i don't have the rights yet so i'm still kind of keeping it in my pocket and uh, the other show that I have in mind is a meal to work working with a chef from Colombia and basically deconstructing the experience of sharing a meal um, into three acts and you actually eat in this uh, performance and sit next to someone and talk to people and and there's also quite a bit of performance in music and theater that will take place and the last question that I ask all my guests is, what prompt do they have for listeners that can help induce their imagination? It can be absolutely anything, either a prompt that they themselves use or one that they maybe teach as a catalyst for helping others imagine new things. And what's coming to my mind is something a little bit different, which is my dad always said that worrying is like being in a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but you don't get anywhere. So I guess the question or the prompt is like, what the, that which I'm doing now, am I getting anywhere? And if not, how can I change what I'm doing? So I think just a lot of looking at how you're investing your time, spending your time, making sure that at least some portion of it is pushing you into new, new places. It was such an unbelievable pleasure and an honor to get to speak to Andrea. If you're interested in finding out more about Galim Dance, you can check them out on Instagram at Galim Dance Co. And To Create a World is coming to the Joyce Theater in New York from February 12th to the 17th. You should check it out. If you enjoyed this episode, there are four more as part of this series about designing bodies and space. 
They're a mix of non-fiction narrative and conversation episodes with an urban geographer, a placemaker, and an interactive narrative designer. Those are going to drop here intermittently over the next few weeks. I'm Romy Neme, and you've been listening to The Third Person. See you here next time.